What I'm saying to you this morning is this. Fear not, everyone. Don't be afraid. Our God is sovereign in the world. He sits in his heaven and he has a plan. And he's working out his plan. He's carrying us to the fulfillment of his kingdom where he's going to come again and reign over us and all things will be made right. So don't be afraid. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Today is what I refer to as an off Sunday for me when it comes to teaching and preaching because I laid out a schedule earlier in the year, and when I got to her towards the end here, I realized that, that the, the way I'd laid out Mark just really wasn't going to work for me. And so I actually took chapter 15 and 16 in two weeks, which I'd laid out, I think, was like either five or six Sundays. So I gave us a bunch of other Sundays. And so we're going to do some things on missions and disciple-making and sharing our faith. Oh, by the way, Chris Michael, what, a, what an incredible testimony, you know, and I was hoping maybe Alfonso was here, but uh, anyway, uh, what incredible test. We're going to be talking about some of that stuff for the next few weeks, but I had this one-off Sunday. Next Sunday, we have something special for you. I hope you'll try to come. Uh, we won't have a live stream next week, so just so you know that we won't have a live stream next week. We're going to purposely not have one, and uh, so, but I hope you'll be here for that. But I had this one Sunday. It's kind of off, and I was... Like, you know, Lord, what do I speak on? Well, I've had this thing on my heart that I've wanted to talk about a little bit, kind of like when we talked about women pastors, remember that? That kind of been on my heart, and I want to talk about that. We had a one-off Sunday there. And so today, um, I, I kind of had wanted to talk to you about what's happening in the world, especially as it relates to Israel and Hamas. Uh, and this coming on the heels of the Ukraine-Russian war, which is still ongoing, uh, I also wanted to talk to us about just war theory. I don't even know if you know what just war theory is. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But I had, you know, back when Ukraine, Russia went to war, I, I became interested in trying to understand that. And then, of course, now with what's going on in Israel and Hamas, I all the more looked into it. Or I, I wanted to talk to you about it as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about what just war theory is this morning so that you'll get a handle on that, where it comes from as believers. We're going to talk a little bit about how that affects how that applies to what's going on in the world. And then I'm going to end this morning um, talking about the future. I have three thoughts I want to give you about the future. And uh, they're not going to be earth shattering or anything like that, but hopefully you'll be encouraged by them. So this isn't going to be our typical work through the gospel of Mark sort of study. So I want to begin with giving us a bit of history. And again, you may know all of this stuff. So if I'm repeating stuff you know, hopefully it'll be in a, just an encouragement and enforcement of what you already know. But I know I learned a lot just prepping to share with you. So maybe this will be new to some of you as well. But I'd, I'd like to begin this morning by giving you a, uh, a brief history of what the world calls Palestine today so that we would, we would understand that. The word Palestine derives from an ancient Greek word, Philistia, from which we get the word Philistine. Like, I'm sure your mind might start thinking of a Goliath and the Philistines, right? Palestine, uh, when uh, it was so called, was considered that small region, which today we would, we would say is Israel in that area in there. But it was, it was basically north of Egypt, uh, to the east of the Mediterranean Sea, to the west of the Arabian Desert, and then south of 
Lebanon and Syria. That, that place became known as Palestine. I'll tell you how that came to have that title as well. From the earliest records, the land was occupied by the Canaanites. And so the land was known as Canaan. Most likely the Canaanites were descendants of the folks who were dispersed during the, uh, the Babel incident where God divided up the languages and moved people all over. Well, the Canaanites were the ones that settled the land of Canaan or that, that land became known as Canaan. I forgot to look up what Canaan means, but anyway, they became known as Canaanites because they lived in Canaan. Uh, the land uh, was an especially uh, good place because it was in the trade routes between Egypt and Africa in the south and Asia Minor in the north and in the Asian continent itself. And so this, this little piece of land beside the Mediterranean kind of was the trade route between these two vast uh, regions. And so it was, it was a great, it was, it's always been a very coveted land because of that. Asia Minor being what would be modern day Turkey today. About 2000 BC, so we're talking 4,000 years ago, God chose a man named Abram who lived on, if you would, the, I guess the east side, the northeast side of the Arabian desert. And he calls this man and he says, listen, follow me and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you some land and I'm going to build a nation out of you. And the nation that I'm going to build out of you is going to bless all the nations of the world. And so God moved this man, Abram, from, from the north uh, east side of the, of the desert, moved him over to the west side of the desert, that little Mediterranean slice of land. Of course, his name was Abram. And uh, God told him that the land that he moved him to would eventually be all his and, and for him and his descendants. Abraham, the Bible says, believed what God told him. He believed what God told him and he acted on what God told him. And God credited that to Abram as righteousness. And in fact, righteousness has always been credited to us because we believe God and we act upon what God uh, has told us. So he moves to Canaan. And he lives in relative harmony and peace with the Canaanites who are there. Uh, I believe that God, I told you this not too long ago when I was taking the perspectives class. This is kind of new to me and it was, just, it was just really encouraging, exciting, whatever. I believe God moved Abraham to that portion of land so that he could showcase this nation that he was building. In other words, he moved him from the obscure back part of the desert to this prominent piece of property that is a trade route between the north and the south so that his people would flourish and the world as it traveled north and south East and west, as it traveled, it would, it would see this people that God had created. And they would, they would say, wow, who is your God? I believe that's why God moved Abram to this, this portion of land. Abram's family grew, but soon there was a drought in that part of the world. And he moved down to Egypt where he would, uh, where he, him and his family, of course he was dead, but his family grow into the millions, and uh, they would be there for 400 years. And I'm going to keep doing this for us, just for perspective. Our country, not, not how long we've been here as, as whatever, not long as how long we've been here as Westerners, but we, our country is only 250 years old, roughly 250 years old. They were in captivity for 400 years in Egypt, okay? As, 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 Egypt grew, as they grew, Egypt became afraid of them, enslaved them, used them as slave labor, and they've been enslaved for 400 years. 
After that, God brought them back to this land that he had promised their forefather Abram, or Abraham, changed his name. And, and the, your Old Testament in your Bible is the story of them returning from Egypt and conquering the land of Canaan, because this time they had, there were so many of them, there was millions of them, and they had to fight for the land, and they fought for the land, and they conquered the land at God's, at God's bequest or at God's initiative. Um, and again, I, I say it's because God desired to set them up as, as a people that the world would then take note of. And, and God promised them a couple of things. He said, listen, if you love me and you follow me, he told these descendants of Abram, who became Abraham, their people became known, they became known as Israel after one of Abraham's uh, sons. Uh, he said, listen, if you love me and follow me and obey me, I, I'm just going to protect you. I'm going to watch out for you. And, and the people are going to see what an incredible God I am, what an incredible nation you are. But that didn't really happen. The people of Israel, the people of Abraham's descendants, continued to disobey God and not follow him as a group. There were always men and women who loved Jehovah, who loved Yahweh, who followed him during that period. But as a, as a people, they really just weren't all that into following after God. And so God would then, he would use the nations around them to help bring them to a place of, hey, we've made a mistake, and repent, right? A, a, a discipline, if you would. He used Syria and Assyria, Babylon, Rome to discipline. And they would turn at times back to the Lord, but it would never, never really last. And finally, God sent his son to them. And uh, when he sent his son to them, they killed him. And of course, you know, we all know and we all believe that his son, Jesus, who died there in, in that land that we're talking about, in the land of Canaan, now the land of Israel, that he died for not just them, but he died for all of us. But the nation that God had put together to bless the, bless the world, this is the nation that ended up actually killing his son. When, uh, although he died for all of us, okay? When Israel, the, the name of Abraham's family, rebelled and revolted against their latest captor after they had killed Jesus, their latest nation empire that was over them was Rome. They rebelled against Rome in 70 AD. And, and the Roman Empire, I believe used by God, destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, killed over a million Jews and decimated the nation. Sixty years later, they would try again. They would try again to rebel against Rome. I think it was like 130-something. Uh, but this time again, they were crushed. And here's where we kind of get into some, relative, uh, some relevant information. After Rush, uh, Rome crushed Israel that second time, they renamed Israel Palestine. The Romans did. And remember, Palestine comes from the word from which we get Philistine, Right? And so no one knows exactly why the Romans uh, chose this name, but most likely it has to do because the Philistines were the closest people group, right? Closest tribe to them. It was located down in the, which would be the south, which is Gaza, which we call Gaza today. That would have been where the Philistines would have been. But they, they named all of that area uh, Philist, Philistia or Palestine, which is a derivative of that. Now you need to remember at this point, at this point, Israel has been in that land for 1,300 years. Now, how, how old are we as a country? 250 years, right? They have been in the land for 1,300 years. We've been in the land longer than 250. 
But they, they've been in the land for 1,300 years. King David's rule was 1,000 years earlier uh, than this, okay? And, uh, and I tell you all that because I want you to see that Israel, the, the descendants of Abram and his family, they have been in the land for millennia at this point. Um, the Jews, the Jews never referred to the land as Palestine. They would not. They always referred to it in their writings. Um, they always referred to it as Israel. Even throughout, even when they were dispersed in the diaspora, the diaspora meaning the, the dispersion of the Jews, right? Even, even in their being dispersed all over the world, they always referred to it as Israel. For the next 500 years, and I'm going to call it Palestine now, uh, for the next 500 years, Palestine was ruled by Rome and then by the Byzantine Empire. So for, you know, almost uh, 500 years, over 500 years. But in 637, the Muslims took over Palestine. They defeated the Byzantine Empire. And in, so Palestine was then ruled by the Muslims for the next 400 years. So at this point, the area uh, was once Jewish, and then maybe it was primarily Christian. Now maybe it's primarily uh, Islamic or Muslim. During the Crusader period, sometimes referred to as the medieval period, lasting from 1099 uh, when the Crusaders first captured Jerusalem until 1291 when they lost it again to the Mamluk uh, Sultanate. Um, basically, it was ruled by the Crusaders for those, what, what is that, 1100, uh, 1,291 years. Uh, excuse me, for 200, 200 and, 291 years. Now, just longer than our country even. That was ruled by the Crusaders, longer than our country. But then when the, when the Mamluk Sultanate took over, they, uh, they conquered the land in Jerusalem and they ruled it until the early 1500s. Now, I don't make anything out of this, but I thought it was interesting. I, I would, they lost it in 1517, the same year that Martin Luther nailed those theses to the door there in Wittenberg. So I had no connection. I'm just, I thought that was an interesting observation. The name Palestine became common uh, for this era in, 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 uh, for modern English. In, in English, we began to use Palestine to refer to that land. It was used, for example, by the Crusaders back in, you know, the uh, 1100s, in the Middle Ages. According to Bernard uh, Lewis, Europeans referred to the Holy Land as Palestine. It kind of began with the Renaissance. The Ottoman Empire ruled Palestine from uh, 1517 or until, I think that's when they lost it. So yeah, until 1517, the Ottomans uh, ruled it for 200 years till 1917, I mean, to 400 years from 19, 1517 to 1917. Uh, and it was generally referred to as the land south of Syria. During all this time, uh, the people of the land never called themselves Palestinians. All this is relevant. We're going to get to a point in a little bit. But the people of the land never called themselves Palestinians. They lived in Palestine, but they referred to themselves as either Jewish, Christian, or, uh, or Muslims. Or they referred to themselves as a member of this clan or a member of this, uh, of this city. In 1917, the British Empire defeated the Ottoman Empire in Palestine. The Ottomans had sided in World War I with Germany, and uh, so the British defeated them. And so when the, the British defeated, in that war, they defeated the Ottoman Empire, they took over Palestine. They were now in charge of Palestine. And they issued a Balfour Declaration in November of 1917. And here's what the Balfour Declaration 
said? It said that the Jews were welcome to come back to their land. And so the British invited all the Jewish people to come home and establish a national uh, Jewish people. I mean, a, a country for, for the Jews. This is World War I. This is not World War II, okay? Thousands upon thousands of Jews heeded that. And they came back to the land so that as many, so there was an influx of over 200,000 Jews returned to live in, uh, in Palestine. Uh, as the decade progressed, you know, we're, we're talking about back in the early 1900s now, uh, there were mass protests that erupted against this Jewish migration, this group of Jewish folks returning to what had been now for way over a thousand years, populated mostly by Muslims. Uh, they objected to the Jews coming back into that, uh, into that area. But because the British Empire, with its power, with its might, with its influence, were behind this, and its diplomatic prowess as well, they couldn't do anything about it. And so the Jews kept coming. World War uh, II would soon come upon the world. And when it did, uh, everybody lost attention in Palestine. I mean, Palestine wasn't on the map anymore. Everybody was dealing with World War II up in, the, up in Europe and that sort of place, and, and over in the, uh, over Japan, those areas. Uh, but at the end of World War II, the UN turned its attention back to the Palestinian disruption, the Palestinian problem that they're having there. And the UN came up with a two-state solution this is what they proposed, that they would split the land, divide the land into two parts, roughly 50-50, a land for the Jews and a homeland for the, the Muslims. And so that was the UN's uh, proposal and it passed. And I think that was how they were going to, to set, up the, set up the land. The Muslim Arabs in this Palestinian region rejected that solution. So when the British withdrew and Israel declared its... As soon as the British withdrew in 1948, leaving the area behind, no longer were there going to be the authority over it, Israel declared itself a, a nation in 1948 based on those divisions that the UN had given them. And that prompted uh, the first bloody Arab-Israeli war. Uh, it was a war that Israel fought against five of its Arab nations. It fought against Transjordan, which is now Jordan, uh, Iraq, Syria, Egypt and Lebanon, they all fought against Israel. And uh, at the end of the war in 1949, one year later or m months later, Israel controlled now two-thirds of what had formerly been the British mandate. While Jordan took control of the West Bank and Egypt took control of what's Gaza Strip that we hear in the, in the news all today. But everything else basically came under the the leadership of this new fledgling nation, the nation of Israel. Uh, the war forced 700,000 Palestinian Arabs to flee in the midst of that fighting. And so they left their homeland and they left, or they left where they'd been living. And they left and went to Jordan, to Lebanon, to Syria, uh, the West Bank, the Gaza. They, they basically left where they were living and they went to these places where they didn't have citizenship. And after the war was over, they wanted to come back to the land of Israel where they had uh, been living. But Israel at that point rejected their return and said it was a threat to their nation. In 1964, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, some of us will remember that, it was in the news all the time when we were young. The PLO was formed 
And it was going to try, it was trying to establish an Arab-Palestinian nation based on the land divisions that had, the UN had come up with back in 19, in the 1940s. However, the PTO, PLO, not PTO, the PLO, the PLO had originally, I mean, its charter, it was dedicated to the destruction of the state of Israel, right? At the same time, they want to form an Arab nation, but they're, they're committed to the destruction of Israel. Um, they, uh, they, they changed that. By 1993, they had accepted Israel's right to exist. And so this, this desire for Palestinian nationhood, uh, the P PLO anyway, moved more to the center. Um, but over the years, there were several armed military conflicts between Israel and its Arab nations. In 1967, this would have been almost 20 years after they were a nation, they had the Six-Day War. We've probably heard about that or read about that. And in, in the Six-Day War, when it was over, Israel controlled the Sinai Peninsula, which is the desert region um, situated between the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea, the Golan Heights, which is the rocky plateau in the north of where Syria is, um, and they controlled Gaza and the West Bank. In other words, after that war, they pretty much controlled just about everything that was in in Palestine, anything that had been part of that two-nation solution, the Arabs had lost it, and, and Israel now controlled it. Y'all following me? Okay. In 1987, the first Infada broke out. And uh, this was from Arabs in the, in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. They sought to shake off Israel's control over those two regions. And, uh, and an Infada means, Intifada means an uprising. This is the first uprising. And uh, the first uprising marked the rise of Hamas. And, and rightly so, I guess, because the first intifada was led by Ahmed Yassin. And uh, he was an imam in the area. And he was the kind of the instigator behind the intifada. But he was also the founder of Hamas. And uh, in 1988, the original charter of the Hamas identified it as part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, it was the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine. We've heard about the Muslim Brotherhood uh, back during the, during the Arab Spring. They talked about that an awful lot in Egypt. Well, this was part of that group. And, uh, and it declared in, in its, in its uh, charter, it says, uh, we're, our members are Muslims who, and I quote, fear God and raise the banner of jihad in the face of oppressors. And the charter states that our struggle against the Jews is very great and very serious. And their charter went on to call for the obliteration and the destruction of, of Israel and for the creation of a uh, Palestinian state or an Islamic state in Palestine in place of Israel. So that's the, that's the origins of Hamas. That's where it began. And its goal was the destruction of Israel. It wasn't a two-state. Remember I told you a minute ago the PLO has, had, had kind of migrated towards wanting to have a two-state solution in the area? Well, Hamas was not for that. In the summer of 1993, the Clinton administration brokered the Oslo Accord, which was signed between uh, the Israel Prime Minister at the time, Yusak Rabin, and, uh, and the PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat. Again, I mean, these, are, these things are dating me because I remember all these guys when, uh, when I was young. Um, but... Uh, and, and so the negotiation of those first Oslo Accords basically was giving the Palestinian, the PLO, the right to govern Gaza Strip and the West Bank. 
And so, so the, the Israel was backing out and withdrawing some of its forces because after that 1968 or 67 six-day war, whatever, Israel had, they had controlled Gaza, they were monitoring Gaza, all of that kind of thing. But now they're, they're moving out. Two years later, the Oslo Second uh, uh, agreements came about. And, and in this, in 1995, the Palestinian Authority was given, um, was granted autonomy over the West Bank and Gaza to basically rule and lead in Gaza and in the West Bank. They were not given nationhood status, but they're given the right to lead. The second intifada broke out in 2000. It's never officially ended. So te- technically there's been a war between Hamas and Israel for the last 20 years. Uh, and in spite Israel leaving Gaza and the West Bank um, and allowing Palestinians to have self-rule, Hamas and Gaza in particular has continued over the last two decades to continue to launch rockets into Israel. I think we, we all have known that. I mean, we've, we've heard that in the news. And Israel, of course, has created with our help this thing called the Iron Dome, and which you've probably heard of that on the news, which they're basically able to shoot those rockets down. And so they, they, don't, they just kind of let them shoot them and they shoot them down. Uh, about the same time, another group very similar to Hamas uh, has come to, come to be in the northern part of it. It's actually in Lebanon or Syria. It's Hezbollah. You may have heard them on the news as well. They're in the north. They're very, very similar with objectives, same objectives as Hamas, okay? And both of these groups are backed by Iran. In 2006, and here's, here's how, how we've gotten to where we are today. In 2006, Hamas won parliamentary, parliamentary, I'm not saying that right, parliamentary, <laughs> help me out somebody. Anyway, yeah, the national elections in, uh, in Palestine. So Hamas won. They became the rulers. They, they overthrew, rejected the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Palestine Authority. They overthrew them. Hamas became the, the leaders in Gaza. Now, Israel responded to this Hamas takeover with the blockade of Gaza, restricting movement of peoples and goods in and out of the territory in a step to say, we, we need to do this because Hamas is now leading there. Hamas has all the authority. We've got to do something to protect ourselves. So they have put embargoes on what can come in to Gaza, uh, what can go out. They, they restricted movement between Gaza and the West Bank, which before there had been, uh, you know, positive movement there. And, uh, and these blockades have really hurt Gaza's economy over the years. And the Palestinians, the Arab Palestinians, accuse Israel of collectively punishing all the Palestinians because of what Hamas is doing. But, uh, but Israel has said we have to do something to protect ourselves. And that brings us to today. You know, October 7th, Hamas sent 1,500 gunmen into Israel, killing 1,400 uh, Israelis purposely targeting women and children and even babies. And, and of course, Israel declared war on Hamas. And that's where we find ourselves today. So a couple of things I want you to notice from what I just shared. Maybe you picked it up, maybe you didn't, but I want you to notice this. And that is that there's never been a Palestinian nation. Everybody see that? There's never been a Palestinian nation. There's never been a Palestinian people group other than Israel. Israel is the only self-identified people group that has lived 
in that land. Now, obviously, they've been exiled for quite, uh, quite some time from them. Uh, but uh, Palestine was named Palestine in an attempt to weaken Israel's, not control, but Israel's um, identity with that part of the land. That's why the, the name Palestine was given to the area in the first place. It's been ruled by many, many nations and many, many empires over the centuries. It's been inhabited by Jews and Christians and Muslims, and it's been ruled by all these different people groups, um, different empires. But the Jewish people have retained their Jewish identity and heritage throughout the last 2,000 years. And um, and they have been able to return to the land that was once theirs and recreate their nation. And from what I understand, no nation in history that's ever been lost to time has ever reformulated, ever come back and, and, and reestablished itself in the land where it had been. That's never happened before. And, and the only reason that did happen is because Israel maintained its cohesiveness as a people group and didn't lose it even in the in diaspora. Even as they're being dispersed all over the world, dispersed all over the world, they never, they never lost uh, their identity as Jewish people, the nation that God had, had formed. And, and so I want to say to you that of all the peoples in the world who have a right to the land, I would say Israel has the greatest right of any people group to that land. Today they're surrounded by 55 Muslim nations, a vast majority of whom have in their writings said, we, we do not believe that Israel has a right to exist and we are going to seek their destruction. Not all, things are changing. Things have actually been, in fact, people have suggested that Iran has, has fomented Hamas to do this because what's been happening with Saudi Arabia and Israel, that they have become, they were getting ready to sign some sort of peace accord uh, together. But they live under constant pressure from people who want to exterminate them uh, as a people group, as, an, as a nation. A few years back, I discovered a ministry called Rival Nation. Some of you may be familiar with them, but Rival Nation is a ministry that rejects violence and war indiscriminately and embraces an absolute pacifism. And I remember reading uh, a bunch of stuff from, from Rival Nation, and, 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 and a lot of the things that this brother said I, I really agreed with and I thought was really good, but I, I found myself in great conflict with him as well because I, I could not go to where he went. I, I had a lot of conflict with how do I live in this world because Jesus told us to live in this world. He said, don't be of this world, but we're to live in this world. So how, how am I to do that? The, the kingdoms of this world are not the, kingdom of, the kingdoms of our king. They will, they will be one day, right? All the kingdoms of the world will be the kingdoms of our king. But, but right now, they're, they're not. Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, my people would fight. My people would fight for me, but my kingdom is not uh, of this world. So all of that led me to, to think about just war theory. Have y'all heard about just war theory? I, I see a few of you have. Anybody familiar with what that is? Okay, just war theory is, is what we as Christians came up with, trying to help our world that we lived in. If, if war is going to exist, right, how can we help our, our 
world fight wars that, that aren't just absolute chaos and evil. Uh, for those of us who follow Jesus, is war and killing ever justified? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. But is, is war and killing ever justified? The, the idea, according to rival nation, they would say no, and we should not be involved in that. Was your Mennonite background the same way? So, so there, there are many groups of Christians that would say, we as followers of Jesus, hey man, we're hands off in the world, right? I mean, if they want to go to war, they go to war, but we're not going to be a part of any of that, right? Because we're of Jesus' kingdom, and we are, and it's different than all the kingdoms of this world. But that being said, we live in this world. We live in this world. We, play, we have a part in this world. And, and I think we're supposed to affect this world, be salt and light in the world. And, and so Christians came up with this thing called just war theory. So I want to talk about it for just a few minutes, and then I want to apply it to where we are in the world. So the idea of just war theory, they, they say can be traced back to Augustine, who, although he abhorred war, uh, believe that the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of Jesus, cannot be realized in our human history because of the reality of sin and brokenness. So until Jesus comes back, we're never going to have the, the peace that Jesus has promised us. So if war and evil exist, Augustine said, and others, I mean, he wrote on the backs of others, but he was, I think he's the person who wrote it down. He wanted to develop a tool to assess the morality of wars in order to limit their number and the brutality and to protect the moral order of the world. So Augustine tried to put together with other theologians back then this framework, well, if, you're, if we're going to fight wars, how should we fight them? What kind of Christian influence should, how should our Christian influence affect war? And uh, so it was divided into two parts. So just war theory has two parts. And by the way, this is where we as believers, those of us who would believe that we still are, are engaging with the, with the nations of the world, trying to help them, most Christians would, would affirm this. But this is also how our nation and how most of the nations of the West function when it comes to war. And you'll notice that in the war with Hamas and Israel, you know, one side is seeking one side is hoping, seeking to fight a just war. The other's uh, just war theory doesn't matter at all. Anyway, there's two parts to just war theory. One is how we go to war, and the second one is how we fight the war once we're in it. So there was five statements with regard to the just war theory about how we go to war. Number one, there had to be a just cause. A just war must seek to rectify an injustice or prevent an injustice. Number two, it had to have a right intention. A just war must advance a good cause or a good thing and resist evil. A just war cannot be waged in the name of national pride or wealth or wanting to simply take more territory for ourselves. Those would not be right intentions for a just war. Had to have proper authority, private citizens. I couldn't declare war on you. You can't declare war on me. This was something for the state the governmental authorities that God had given them. It had to have proper authority behind the declaration of a war. They had to have reasonable chance of success. Wars are super costly in human life. And in the greatest, in, in, in one of the greatest commandments, we would all say would be to, to honor life, right? To not kill and murder. And, and so if, there, if, if there's no reasonable success at this, you know, why, why do this? And so there had to be reasonable, a reasonable chance of success. And I, and I, would, I was listening to um, John Stone Street this week, and he was talking about there had to be, he, he was saying that just war had to have a, a, a reasonable 
a desired good outcome at the end, which I think would fit under this. And the last thing was last resort. All nonviolent options have been exhausted and warfare is all that remains. So those would be the five statements about going to war. The two about doing war are pretty simple, easy to understand. Proportionality, the degree of force should never be greater than what is necessary. And number two, in just war, we seek to avoid the non-combatants you know, in all wars, non-combatants, that would be the friendly fire. That'd be the people, the innocents, the, the people, the children that are being killed. We, we don't seek to kill them. We seek to avoid killing them. Although some innocents will be killed, but a just war seeks to do everything it can to prevent the, the, the wounding and the killing of, uh, of non-combatants. A just war then is not a war in which both sides act justly. There's, there can't be such a war. There can't, be, uh, there can't be a just war if both sides are actually just, right? There, can't be, there won't be a war if that were the case. So um, for a war to be just, the war must be waged in order to right a wrong or prevent an imminent injustice. Now, before I apply this, let me just say just, a couple, just one more thing about just war as I've thought about it. It's idealistic and it's subjective, okay? Not saying that we can't use it. Not saying that we should. I think we should. It's the best thing that we've put, we've given the world as believers. We should use this. But we need to recognize at the same time that it is idealistic and subjective. In other words, number one, there's probably never been a war where all seven of those qualities have been perfectly met, okay? It's subjective in that every category, every one of those seven categories is, is open to interpretation, by folks, right? They're going to interpret it different than the other person. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Was the Revolutionary War an unjust war? Did the American revolutionaries have a legitimate authority to, see, this is one of the, the reasons for just war. Did they have a legitimate authority to wage war against the British crown? Now, many Americans today, many Americans back then would have said they did. But if you'd asked King George back then, he would have said they didn't. So there's, you know, it's kind of subjective. It's the truth is in the eye of the beholder. When we dropped the two nuclear bombs on Japan, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I mean, I saw this was a debate on a Facebook page here I read recently. We killed over 200,000 citizens of those two cities. Was that avoiding non-combatants? Did we avoid, did we do everything we could to avoid non-combatants, right? So, so people would, people were, they were arguing both ways, right? That it was necessary, some were saying that it wasn't. You get my point, my, my point is there's a subjectivity about this, okay? And, and the final thing about this is that both warring factors, factions can claim they're fighting a just war. Both can do that, and I, I think a great example of that would be the Civil War, right? If we go back to the Civil War, both sides were saying we're fighting for justice, right? Of course, obviously, from my vantage point, one, only one side was fighting for justice, you know, but, uh, but you, you get my point. So there's a subjectivity about this and, and all. So just war theory may be idealistic and subjective, but Christians have long recognized our dual citizenship, that we belong to Jesus' kingdom, but we also live in these kingdoms and we need to be ambassadors for Christ to our kingdom. So we, we seek to shine the light of Jesus on our, on our cultures, and we, treat, we seek to positively influence it, and that's what Augustine and other Christians throughout the generations have done. We've tried to apply just war theory to, to these wars. And, but let's go back to the Crusades, right? Go back to the Crusades. Should, should, should the Crusades ever have been fought in Jesus' name? Never. 
Never. That's not even just war theory, right? That's not even just war theory. That is, that is just ungodly people, you know, just doing ungodly things, right? But, but, we, but this, this just war theory has really kept the world. Do you realize before the Christian influence on the world, that baby killing and kill, in other words, you, you, you didn't treat people as individuals. You treated people as a group. It's kind of like what we see happening in our world today with this intersectionality and all that kind of stuff. Um, we're, we're trying to treat everybody as a group as, a, as opposed to individuals, where, where we as Westerners, we've always said it's the individual. The groups matter, but individuals matter as well. But prior to our influence on the individuals, in other words, when, when one tribe went in against another tribe, I mean, they killed children, they killed babies, they gutted pregnant women, the kind of things that we saw Hamas do in Israel not even just a few weeks ago, right? So, so our influence as followers of Jesus has greatly affected our, our world uh, positively. Uh, Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars, and with the intra intractability of sin, we have no reason to believe that, that war won't continue, that there won't be wars in our world till Jesus comes back again. So rival nation uh, would say that we don't get involved in those nations in which we live, but I disagree. I think they're wrong. When Israel lived in Babylon, God wrote them a letter through Jeremiah, and part of that letter said, you work for the well-being of the land where you're living because that's where you are right now. And I think that same thing would, would apply today. So, um, in the meantime, just war theory is an invaluable moral help to us. Um, uh, to ignore that fact is to ignore reality, to ignore our moral responsibility is to invite conflicts to continue without the mediating influence of our Christian grace, okay? Just war is no silver bullet, uh, but it, I think it can help us mediate God's grace in our world. So back to our present situation. Is Russia's war with Ukraine just? Not at all. Not according to just war, uh, just war theory, right? What Russia did is not just in any way. They, they would claim otherwise, but it doesn't meet the criteria at all. The war was not about a just cause or a right intention. It was about seizing territory, and they targeted civilians. Is Ukraine's war just? I would say yes. They're seeking to right a moral wrong. They're seeking to right an injustice. Is Hamas fighting a just war? Again, it is, it is beyond incomprehension that people would say that, yes, they're fighting a just war. Now, I appreciate, listen, I know we have some of you here. I don't know that you would fit this mold, but, but I know plenty that do. Young Americans desire, I mean, you millennials, whatever's underneath millennials, I don't even know what that is, Gen, Gen Z or something like that. Whatever you guys are, you guys are big on justice. You want justice in the world. You're for the underdog, and I get that, and that's really good. But you are so wrong if you're influenced. I mean, if, you're, if you think you need to stand with Hamas, you, you have totally misunderstood. You're foolish because you haven't done your research of the issues. Israel has more claim to the land than other folks that are living there now, and their claim to the land is older. They were there first. And Hamas has no commitment to just war theory. They target civilians, even babies. They don't seek a peaceful resolution. Israel has been willing to accept a two-state solution to the area, but the Arabs around them, the countries around them, are committed to their destruction and sought to kill them. 
Is, is Israel justified in their declaration of war against Hamas? I believe absolutely so. Now, again, I want to remind you, I just got you saying just war theory is somewhat subjective, and, 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 and I get that. But I think they're absolutely just in their declaration of war against Hamas. One of the hardest parts in the war against Hamas is going to be that Hamas uses civilians as their shields. In other words, they recognize that we as Westerners with our Christian influence have said we're not going to target non-combatants. And so, so Hamas says, well, if we put our, our stuff right in the middle of the hospitals or right in the middle of the, the, the centers of, of just innocent Palestinians, then they can't bomb us without killing civilians, and so they won't. And uh, so, I mean, Israel's in a really quandary there about how to deal with, that, with them as Hamas wraps itself uh, with innocent people. This is really hard. So I got some things I'd like to encourage us to pray for, pray for Israel, even as I encourage you to pray for Ukraine, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not, this is, we need to pray for injustices in the world, but, but pray for Israel, pray for their success in this mission. At the, same t- at the same time, pray for their commitment to do all they can to fight a just war and protect civilians. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Palestinians are not all Hamas. There are many Palestinian Arabs that don't, don't agree with Hamas. I don't know how many. I don't know what the percentage would be. Uh, Hamas got elected. Now, whether that was a true election, who knows, right? But, but there are Palestinians who don't want this, who want to live at peace with, uh, with Israel. There are Palestinian Christians who live in Gaza, right? I mean, I didn't know that. Did y'all know that? I didn't know that until all of this. There's, there's, there's Christian Coptic churches in, in Gaza, and so, so not everybody is Hamas, but it's really hard for Israel to determine who's Hamas and who's not. Pray for them that they would use this restraint and seek to fight a just war with that as one of its principles. And at the same time, pray for the salvation of Hamas, uh, men and women. They are blinded by the suppression of, of truth and by Satan. Pray for them that God might just grant them grace to, to see what they've done suppressing the truth. And, and let's pray for our brothers and sisters and for the Palestinian Arabs that live there, that God would rescue them and protect them uh, somehow. So how should we think about the future? Where are we time-wise? So how should we think? Oh, man, I'm out of time. We'll run through this really quick. So how should we think about the future? Okay, three thoughts. Number one is, what does this war in Israel tell us about the immediate future and the return of Jesus? I have absolutely no idea. You know, when I was a young man, you know, everybody was Gog and Magog in the current events of the day. And what I mean by that is whatever happened in the world, right, they were like, this is Gog and this is Magog. You know what that is? That's a prophecy in Ezekiel, right? And this is this and this is that. I've heard more about Mag, Mag and Magog, Gog and Magog. I've heard, I'd heard more about them in the last three weeks than I'd heard in the last 10 years or so. So everybody's, everybody's trying to tell us what this means and um, you know, I don't know what it means. So listen to the prophetic folks. The only, the only word I'd give you on that is just be careful because people have been doing this forever, right? They've been taking current events and saying, this is what this means. And then when it, you know, people wouldn't do that if we did the Old Testament, if we did to them what we did to Old Testament prophets, right? When they said, this is this, and it didn't come to pass, they were to be put to death with a false prophet, right? So just be careful with all that stuff. I guess here's, here's maybe the most important thing I'd want to say to you this morning about the future is... Let's not be afraid. Let's not be afraid. 
If we dwell on what's happening in the world, I think it'd be very easy for you to become afraid, for me to become afraid. Listen, whether we want to admit it or not, I mean, we are, we could be, we are, I think, I don't want to say are as if it's going to happen, but I want to say we, we could be very close to a third world war. I mean, if, if China were to evade, invade Taiwan, would that lead to a world war? It might. If North Korea attacks South Korea, that might lead to a, another war because the world's polarizing. You probably have heard about this, right? That there's beginning to be uh, this shifting of nations and, and nations are joining over here and nations are joining over here. If North Korea were to invade South Korea, if Russia was to invade a NATO country, if a bunch of Muslim nations start to attack Israel, I think all of these things could trigger another world war. And, and with our atomic warfare, what would that do to the world? And in our own national internal divide, we are so pol polarized as a, as a nation by ideology, right? Uh, are, we, are we nearing a civil war? I mean, I'm not, I, listen, I'm not a doomsday. I'm not saying these are things. I'm simply saying that if we dwell on these things, we could become very fearful because I think we can see how very easily some of these things could, could push us off the cliff, uh, off a cliff. So what I'm saying to you this morning is this, fear not, everyone. Don't be afraid. Our God is sovereign in the world. He sits in his heaven and he has a plan. And he's working out his plan. He's carrying us. We sang about it this morning a couple of times. He's carrying us to the fulfillment of his kingdom, where he's going to come again and reign over us, and all things will be made right. So don't be afraid. He says this to us in the midst of everything that we're going through. He says, I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. I'm always going to be with you. I'll be there right there beside you. Nothing can separate you from my love. So choose not to be afraid. Fear is an emotion, right? It comes on us. I can't help it when I get afraid. I mean, it's an emotion, right? But what I can do is I can control what I do with that emotion. I can control with what I do with that fear. Don't let the fear rule over you. Speak to your fears. You lead over your emotions. Here's Psalm 56.3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me, the psalmist says. Here's what the prophet Isaiah said, for God, 41. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. And here's Jesus himself to, the little, to his little flock, Luke chapter 12. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I mean, we're going, to, we're going to be a part of his kingdom. Fear not. Don't be afraid of the future. My last thing, and I'm out of time, but the last thing I was going to tell you was to look for and hasten the return of Jesus. And I'm not going to go over all my notes, but I, I, I just want to encourage you to look for the return of Jesus. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, I mentioned it, I think it was last week or the week before that, but look for the return of Jesus. Be expectant. Be hopeful. Be on the edge of your seat. Our king is coming. He's returning. He will come to rule and to reign us, and he will destroy the enemy, and he's going to judge humanity and lift the curse on the earth, and there'll be no more sorrow, no more death, no more sin, no more of these things that bring us down. So be on the edge of your seat. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He was a great Bible commentator. He says, I never lay my head on the pillow without thinking that perhaps before I awake, the final morning may have dawned. 
I never begin my work without thinking that he may interrupt it to begin his own. And every night before we go to sleep, we ought to say, he may come tonight. Every day when we get out our tools to go to work, this may be the last day. This may be the last day's work I'll do. So I'd encourage us to do what G. Campbell Morgan did. And I mean, I don't do it. I I practice it, but it falls away. Wake up your morning and say, Jesus, come soon. Maybe today. Make a habit of just looking for the return of Jesus. I said hasten the return of Jesus. And I, I just want to read. I, mean, I, had all the, I, had all this, I had all this commentary on Second Peter, which I, I'm not going to do. But it's, it's the passage where he says, hey, people scoff at us. They make fun of us saying, where is Jesus? This was 2,000 years ago. They really scoff at us today, right? But you remember, remember what, what Peter said? Hey, don't forget that this eternal creator God... I mean, he's, he's never had a beginning, never has an end. So to him, a thousand years to you, man, it's like one day to him. So it's been two days since Jesus left, according to God, right? And uh, so, he, so Peter goes on to say, and, you know, don't forget, God's, God's coming to judge. And so that's when he says, uh, that's when he says this. Let me read it to you. That's when he says this. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. Did you hear that, everyone? Since he's coming in judgment, he's coming again. This is the kind of people you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. As you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. All right? Hasten its coming. How do we hasten its coming? Well, this is just Jimmy's speculation, but... If he's waited all this time because he's longing for people to respond to the good news of Jesus, right? Then it seems to me that the way to hasten his coming is for us to do what what Chris and Michael did. It's sharing Jesus with others. It's helping take the good news of Jesus around the world. That's how we hasten his day, by, by being just his like Sue's song, living in such a way that people see Jesus in us and, and are drawn to him. So I would say to you, hasten the day of the Lord by just living for him, representing him, calling on men and women everywhere to come and follow him. That's how we hasten his day. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.